0: Welcome to 7 Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. To become a supporter of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash 7 Minute Torah. All right, welcome, everyone. This week, I have the honor of interviewing someone who really is one of the great Jewish thinkers of our time, and that's Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. Rav Yitz, and I'll introduce him more fully when he gets here, he's a theologian and a rabbi and an author. As I'll mention in the interview, he's written over 10 books on Jewish thought. He also is the founder of an organization that he led for a number of years. It's called Klaal. The National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, which he founded together with Elie Wiesel, and which was, or which is a think tank committed to questions of Jewish identity and religious practice in a pluralistic way. Raviitz is an Orthodox rabbi. He's also really deeply committed to Jewish pluralism and to the universal values that he believes come out of Judaism, values that compel us to repair the world and. To find the humanity in all human beings. And today I'm going to turn to him to help us understand Vayikra, this first parsha in the book of Leviticus, which is so much about sacrifice. Vayikra is essentially a list and an explication of how sacrifices were performed in the ancient Mishkan. It lists a number of different kinds of sacrifices, and then it tells us how they were performed. There's a fair amount of detail and blood and gore and here are the animals you can bring and here's how the sacrifices were to be performed and Rav Yitz has a really interesting take on what this is all about and why it matters and after we talk about the parsha as we always do we're going to continue our conversation and we're going to talk more broadly about his take on Judaism both his own perspective on what it is that Judaism teaches us about how to embrace life and live our best in the world, and then ultimately also about how we as Jews can do a better job getting along, learning from one another, and building a pluralistic Jewish world. This is a somewhat longer discussion than we usually have, even in these interview episodes. Although, as usual, we'll talk Parsha at the beginning for the first little while, and then take a break before we broaden our discussion. And I really encourage you, if you're able, to stick around, because what Rav Yitz Greenberg has to say is both moving and, I think, really pertinent for the Jewish lives that we're living and the world that we're living in today. Rav Yitz Greenberg, welcome to 7 Minute Torah, and thank you for being with me today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to being with you.
0: I'm thrilled and I'm honored. You are someone whose work I've really been aware of for a lot of my life and a lot of my career. And so I'm so deeply honored and glad to be able to talk with you today. Um, You are a teacher, a theologian, author of, by my count, over 10 works on Jewish thought and Jewish theology. I'm going to introduce you more fully later toward the second part of our conversation. But if it's okay with you, can we, uh, can we start off by talking Parsha?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. what Jews do. That's the brilliance of the, the rabbis that they set this up. That every day, every week, we have a learning and it's, it's a wonderful opportunity.
0: Exactly. It gives us something to talk about all the time and to talk about over and over again and keep finding new meaning in these ancient texts. So we're reading Vayikra. Vayikra is of course the beginning of the book of Vayikra the book of Leviticus and you and I were just talking briefly right before our conversation about how challenging Vayikra can be from a from a relevance perspective that we look at this parsha and it's all about sacrifices animal sacrifice in the ancient temple these are not things that are part of our life for the most part and so I wonder if you might Help us find some meaning, help us find some relevance in uh, this parsha that's all about sacrifice.
1: Well, okay, let me start with a confession. First of all, I am a, a, a Kohen, by, <laughs> a priest myself by, by descent, although I will skip all the jokes, which your audience knows too, about, about the man who, who buys his priestly rank by, uh, by paying the rabbi hundred thousand dollars. And then when he the rabbi gives it to him, he says, "I'm so happy I was able to get this because my father, and my grandfather, they were all priests also. But of course, I <laughs> got it not by paying for it, but by, but by descent, at least claimed descent. Uh, we, we a lot of the records have been lost <laughs> since the destruction of the temple.
0: So this is your family business, then.
1: This is my family business, and in fact, let me start with a confession. Uh, number one is that I really was. For many years, not particularly touched by or moved by the, the Corbanaut, the sacrifices. And i um, being raised and living in an Orthodox community. Of course, you pray for the restoration of the temple. And I must say, I used to have this secret nightmare, which was that uh, I myself have trouble with blood. You know, it sort of it makes me feel faint when I see it. <laughs> anyway, I had this fantasy that, you know, the Messiah comes, the temple is rebuilt. And uh, I am a priest, so they, they invite me out to the temple, and maybe the I'm the high priest because I'm tall. <laughs> anyway, they invite me out to bring the to bring the korban. They bring out the first ox, they cut its throat, I see the blood and I faint. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of my brilliant career. Anyway, but uh, of course, and again, uh, well, I'm not I didn't invent this, but as you recall, of course, it's a famous matter that Maimonides in particular, the greatest Jewish philosopher maybe of all time, had serious problems with sacrifices, which by his time already he felt did not capture the spiritual, the religious values, the relationship with God, all of which is the center of religious life. And he obviously was struggling with why the why we then have these kind of bringing animals, slaughtering them, etc., burning them. And his own interpretation was, uh, it made sense to me, which is that, number one, is that the time the Torah was given, the Torah speaks in every generation, although it has to speak in the context of that generation. And yes, that means that words that were very moving in ancient times might not be moving at all, so either you have to say them in a new way or connect them to the understanding what we bring to our story in our time. Anyway, Maimonides suggested that at the time the Torah was given, the korbanot, sacrificing, connecting to God through animal sacrifice, was so universal and so taken for granted that like, literally there was almost no other way that one could speak to God or connect to the gods. And this was so powerful that we said that the Torah in order to reach and teach the Jewish people, had to use a method or a channel that they could believe in. And it was so universal. All the Gentiles, all the nations around them, had animal sacrifice, that in a way, it could not move to the next level. It was So it went to this very level of bringing animal sacrifices as the key uh, way of connecting to God, although then it tries to a, make sure you understand this is to God, unlike other animal sacrifices, which were to demons or to multiple gods. So there's a difference already in, or there's again a very famous passage in Leviticus later on, where it says, don't bring sacrifices to the demons or to the to the people who, or to the strange animal beings or semi-divine beings that are out there. And so the Torah, in fact, says the whole point of the sacrifices is to get you. You're going to bring them anyway, but we're trying to switch you from demons and idols and strange gods to channel it to connect to the one God and the true God and the God who has religious expectations.
0: So for Maimonides, it's kind of like a transitionary device to move us from... The ancient modes of worship that people might have been used to toward a more true worship and a recognition of God's presence.
1: It's a, it's a well taken point, very well taken point. And in fact, the truth is, he he says that, although he, he says that after Korban, the next higher level of communication is speaking to God, is prayer. And in fact, this is what the rabbis did. And in fact, they weaned, or if they will, they really upgraded and educated the Jewish people to move from the animal sacrifice to a much more focused intellectually, spiritually, psychologically meaningful relationship to God and in which you spoke to God and and prayed to God and listened to the Word of God. And in fact, Maimonides then hints very strongly that this is again a second stage, and as you said, it's a transitional stage. And the ultimate stage, he quotes the Psalms, that to you, God, silence is praised, And he sort of suggests that maybe ultimately uh, silence, meditation, communing will be the really fundamental language. The only catch with this is that, on the other hand, he has a magnificent. It's his masterpiece, uh, the Book of Code of Law, the of the Strong Hand, Mishnah Torah, another name for that book. And in that book, he goes into all the details of, prof, of of sacrifices and seems to be describing that in the third temple, these will all be carried out. So you have Maimonides split, apparently, view himself as to whether this is transition or ultimate. But of course, other people too, and including, I'm thinking of Ralph Cook, one of the sacrifices in our particular, our particular parsha this week, the opening parsha of the book of Leviticus is called that God spoke to him, and this is the first parsha's name also. In our parsha, we have four sacrifices already put before us. One is the whole burnt offering, which the whole animal is burnt. The second is cereal or grain uh, sacrifices. Uh, And the third is a chatat, which is typically translated translated as sin offering, but in a book that I'll refer to in a moment, uh, uh, Jacob Milgram, it's not a sin offering, it's a purification offering. It's meant to offset or to, as it were, clean up the stain, the moral, spiritual stain left, not just on the sinner, it's really a stain on the tabernacle on the home, which is the symbolic resident of God. And, and the fourth is sham, which is more directly a kind of a sin offering. So we have four very specific uh, offerings. and let me make you a point right there in terms of the shift from the universal sacrifice to the Jewish or Torah's version, uh, Wilhelm points out that in the ancient Near East, the priests did everything in connection with these sacrifices because lay people weren't supposed to come in. They didn't have the special rank and special status that allowed them to be uh, intermediaries to God, Mm -hmm. whereas in the Torah already, the lay people bring the sacrifice brought by lay people, and while the priest does the actual technical work of sacrifice, the lay people bring it, they designate the animal or the bird in this case, and they also, at least as the rabbis understand the Torah, they would put the hand over in a kind of symbolic gesture of ordination and of blessing, so that the priest was acting on their behalf. So again, what you have is a movement which is characteristic of Jewish religion, from a select group being the ones who relate to God, to a democratization in which everybody has some role to play, even though the priests have this higher status and special role.
0: That's very interesting. I had never thought about the way that Jewish or Israelite sacrifice moves already toward a democratization. Because, of course, that then predicts what will happen later under the rabbis, which is that access to God will move toward study and prayer, which, of course, all of us have access to. So that's then a much greater democratization of access to God.
1: I love it. It's a correct point. In fact, I'll add one of my favorite central ideas in Jewish religion that the human being is in the image of God, which I consider to be the the fundamental ground of Jewish religion because it teaches the dignity, the special status and dignity of every human being who is an image of God. I mean, it's the highest compliment you can say, that God-like. Having said that, many commentators point out that the idea of an image of God is widespread in the ancient Near East. But typically, it's either the statue itself or the king is seen as God's regent on earth, and therefore he is the image of God. So what Judaism said was what other cultures said was reserved only for the king is, in fact, the dignity that is for every human being. Mm-hmm. Every human being is in the image of God. So that process of democratization, I believe, is a very powerful theme throughout the Jewish tradition, whether whether are saying we're God-like and that the people are godlike and they should be treated and should work on becoming more godlike. That's one way. The second way is the democratization of the sacrifices. And the third way, as you said, and even more brilliant, the rabbi's achievement where everybody's invited to learn, study, educate, and through their minds and through their hearts and through their psychology, they connect to God and, and we connect to God at a much higher a more abstract and more refined and more psychologically deep internalized level.
0: We're going to take a very short break right now and when we come back we'll continue this conversation about the Parsha about sacrifice and how it relates with um, with holiness in our own lives. While we take this short break let me just take this opportunity to thank those who support 7 Minute Torah each week. If you are interested in becoming a weekly supporter you can do so by giving as little as a dollar or two an episode, but it all adds up. And you can go to patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot slash 7 torah. The other announcement is that I am offering a class just in time for Pesach that's called The Many Meanings of Matzah. We're going to explore what I'm calling the spicy symbolism of Judaism's blandest food. We'll take a look at what matzah means, what matzah has meant, and all the various symbolisms and meanings in Unleavened Bread. That's a totally free class, Monday, April 3rd at noon Eastern on Zoom. And you can sign up at lasok.org, L-A-A-S-O-K dot org. And now back to my conversation with Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. All right, we're back with Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. And we were just talking about the Parsha. Now, I know that you have a kind of a unique reading of This Parsha, which is based on um, a reading from Jacob Milgram, which is very much about holiness and life. Can you maybe give us a sense of the way that you um, that you understand Vaikra and the book of Leviticus?
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's um, again, as I said, I was raised in the typical way you study and read it is just these details about about, uh, you know, where where you cut it at the neck, where you burn it, what you do with the with the. uh, with the ashes and so on, and or or in other parts of the book have dealing with sicknesses, uh, ritual uncleanness or or impurity and so on. So, as I said, the book for many years I studied it and it was expected to know it. As I said, it's the family business. but I <laughs> found it very unmeaningful or at least a struggle to make sense of it. Milgram came along. Just a, it's a it's a masterpiece, and I'd like to plug it for your listeners. Also, Milgram Jacob Milgram has a three volume commentary on Leviticus. I didn't think you could write that much about the book, but it's it's extraordinary. And the most important thing about the commentary, aside from a thousand insights, he tried to get understand that holiness. The Leviticus is all about the sacrifices, but the sacrifices are in the temple or in biblical early times in the tabernacle, in the so-called Mishkan, which is a kind of symbolic home in which God, or God's presence is felt in a most powerful, almost tangible way. And it's in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the community. So in effect, this is where you go to get a kind of a high-intensity sense of the divine presence. Milcom says that this is really about Something altogether different. What, holiness is about life. When you say God's presence, if you see God, God is the source of life. God is the ruler who loves life, who stimulates life, and whose greatest pleasure is life. And then you read the opening chapter of Genesis, God says, whenever God meets life, God says, give me more. Approval. He wants to see multiplication of life. This God of life calls us to life. And the whole ritual structure. It's purity and impurity. is Purity is the zone in which we're supposed to live. Purity is the zone in which the holy, where God is most present, is totally life. This is the insight. You don't have any human death in the tabernacle or in the temple. Human beings are not allowed to bring in corpses into this into the temple or into the tabernacle. And before they could enter, they had to shake off the in contact with the dead or impurity to pass with a very elaborate ritual, which again culminates in a rebirth ritual. Total immersion in a mikvah without clothes is another way of entering or re-entering the amniotic fluid and being born again.
0: Right, and we know that they've they've excavated mikvahs mikvah right outside the ancient temple. So this was a very common practice that before somebody would enter the temple, they would pass through the waters, purify themselves, And so I guess you're saying enter a state of total life.
1: So if you want to be in the temple, you have to be in a total state of life. Exactly right. Exactly right. And therefore, what what follows from this, and this is the point I wanted to make, it dawned upon me one day that holiness is totally associated with life. And therefore, our task, if we want to be holy is to live life and to live life more deeply, because when you live life on the surface, you may not feel or experience the presence of God. But if you will go deeper, you'll go deeper psychologically. If you'll go deeper into the fullness of life, you will feel this dimension of divine presence that undergirds all of existence. So what the book is really about is to get people to see that they are to work, to live, including When they do a sin, which is on a side of death, it's a side of anti-holiness, they have to repair this by moving through rituals that move them back into life and into actual repentance that corrects the evil that they did. So the book is really about life against death, and what the priests are teaching us or showing us is how do you move to the side of life. That means, for example, it, it tells us what are sins. Sins include swearing falsely or betraying or not giving a witness. In this parsha, we have these examples. So again, what the sacrifice is trying to do is not just simply bring a, a repair or a, a guilt payment. It's trying to get us to recognize we made this sin, to confess we made this sin, and then to correct it or to move on or speak up and to give the witness this time or, 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 or give up the stolen and correct ourselves on that. So it's and just as the sacrifices try to get us to move us from sin and death back to life, so is the rest of the book. When it talks about, for example, ritual impurity, menstruation is a, is a kind of a mini-death because you, you the egg was not fertilized and now it is sloughed off in blood. So going back to the mikvah after menstruation is a way of saying, I have now been born or born again and I now am committed to life and to living intensely and living, so again, in the in the Orthodox tradition, people will stop sex. But, but then afterward, going back to mikvah is to go back to sex, go back to love, go back to life, go back to affirmation. And he runs this through the whole book. And he tries to show you, even in dealing with sickness, that what happens with the sickness, particularly the so-called leprosy sickness, which involves decay of limbs. Again, it's a kind of a mini-death. It shows the degradation and, and, and as it were, destruction of life cells and life elements. So it's trying to get you to go through that and to be reborn again, to put it behind you, and to go back fully into life. And one can go on and on. And the, the most brilliant thing he makes is that when you get to the second half of Leviticus, it talks about the famous uh, the holiness code in which it talks about love your neighbors yourself, it talks about not to steal, it talks about not to speak falsely, not to bring false witness, not to speak evil about other people. He tries to say that these sins are really acts of pollution or death, mini-death, you know, not literal death. Hmm. And And what the book is trying to get you is to move from that into acts that affirm life and embrace the fullness of life. Love your neighbors, yourself. Give tzedakah, give help to the person in need. Give justice and equal treatment to the poor as well as the rich in law. All these are examples of affirmation of life. And they come from the idea that when you are affirming, building, experiencing, deepening life, that's when you're closest to God. And so in effect, Milgo says there are really three zones. One zone is the zone of impurity. That's the zone of death. And that death may include not just physical death, but decay, sickness, and sin, and evil. The other zone, the pure zone, is the zone of holiness set aside for God in which there is no death and no sin is allowed in. And I say no sin, a famous passage in Psalms 24, who shall uh, go up to God's holy mountain, who shall stand in God's temple?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And the one, the pilgrim who wanted to enter had to answer, the kichapayim, I have clean hands and a pure heart, meaning I have no criminal or sinful behavior. I'm coming in not just for a ritual presence of God, but I had to first purify myself of my evil, of course, The problem with this, again, is that they said it, they didn't necessarily do it, and that was one of the great problems that the prophets had. People came to the temple, and they were supposed to say that I got clean hands, but many kept on, in fact, they misused sacrifices to thinking they'll pay off God with rituals while they did evil or sinful or cruel things to other people. But Milcom's point is, what the book Leviticus says is that to do good, to take care of others, to tell the truth, to give equal justice, these are statements of life. And to spread false reports or to degrade people or speak evil of them or to take advantage of them or to cheat them or to steal from them, this is the choice of death, as it were. And this is the, what the whole book is really about. It's not about ritual and sacrifices and details, these are the physical expressions a much deeper issue, which is that we're supposed to work and live on the side of life.
0: So when you say to affirm life, you're really, it sounds to me like you're talking about two different things. Um, One is what we might call living life to the fullest, right? Enjoying life and accomplishing something and sort of doing your best to live your best life. And on the other hand, you're talking about, I think, affirming the life and the worth of others, affirming god's image in other people working to make to make the best world working to affirm that others are um that others are worthy of being treated with the utmost respect is that how you understand this affirmation of life
1: the two are not two different zones that's that's what i came to see in other words yes taking care of the other responsibility it respect dignity of the other treating them like a vision that is certainly Central central Jewish teaching, and of course, Rabbi Akiva famously said, love your neighbor yourself is the central commandment of the whole Torah. That having been said, what I have come to see is that there's a deeper message. In addition to what showing respect and helping and building the life of others, in your own life, choosing life, deepening life, having, falling in love, committing in love, creating life in love, raising a child, that personal side of it developing your own mind your own heart this is also a form of life deepening life and and this is the brilliance of the tradition it's trying to yes this can easily turn into narcissism and <laughs> indulgence and overeating junk food <laughs> i know that but that's not what it's about what it's trying to say is if you will deepen your own life if you will embrace the complexity the richness of relationship and of love if you will take on personally developing your mind you can dumb down but you can become more godlike if you'll develop your mind you can restrict your emotional needs and make them very self-centered or you can develop friendship you can develop relationship you can develop partnership you can develop covenant of marriage children and you can embrace total strangers this broadening and deepening of your life is also a form of holiness. And if you do it deeply enough, this is what the tradition promises, you will feel the presence of God. The Talmud has a wonderful line that says, if a man and woman are making love, if they do it the right way in a worthy way, then the divine presence is right there. And what does that mean? And, and if they do it the wrong way, it's not, so what does that mean? But I, I've come to see what it's trying to say is yes. You may think it's just sexual fulfillment, but a sexual fulfillment involves recognizing the uniqueness, the preciousness, the value of the other. It's it's loving them so much that you want to give them pleasure, that you want to, that you feel the pleasure of their presence, that they feel the pleasure. So what appears to be a kind of a maybe a high level emotional fulfillment or feast is not. It's much deeper than that. If it's done right, it really involves meeting the uniqueness and the preciousness of the other and at that moment when you reach that level of responsibility and a relationship to another person you will find divine presence too and it works both ways if you will deepen your love of god it should translate into loving your fellow human beings and this so my point is it's not indulged as a self-fulfillment it can be run that way it can be run into a narcissistic self self self-worship but done right, it's really the idea of the deep, the depth of life and the fulfillment of all its possibilities.
0: I, I love that idea. And it reminds me of the idea that I, the question that I've heard raised before that, you know, of course, the Torah, in many ways, puts at the center, the idea that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. But in order to, to do that, you also have to love yourself in order to love your neighbor as yourself. And so ultimately... By affirming life in oneself, you're also affirming life in others and and vice versa.
1: That's an excellent, excellent point. Again, again, one can set an idealist or somehow seems to be an idealist version. You know, your life is nothing. Give it all to other people. And some of the greatest saints uh, that presumably did that. But actually, that misses the point. The, the, the point is to have affection, love for life itself. And if you don't have it for your own... But you, uh, you, it's possible maybe you can have it for others and not yourself but in the long run it's not, it's not coherent, it's not it's not holistic if you want to love others you have to be able to love and accept yourself too, which doesn't mean you blind yourself to your faults or it means doesn't mean self-worship, it means a level of acceptance and appreciation and an empathy for yourself <laughs> as well as for others Leviticus tells us that the Kohanim had to have no connection with death. The only exemption is if they lose an immediate and closest relative, they are, you want to give them a chance to express their loss and their grief so they can go to a funeral or they can bury a parent, a child, a, a God forbid, a wife, whatever. And the closest ones were allowed to do that. Other than that, they had to have no, con- no contact with death because they're full-time for God the priests. Hmm. so they should be full-time in the side of life. Now that that. That theme runs runs all the way through, and so I, all I say is that in the same, it comes back to yourself that you should be full time working for life in your own life, and for other people's lives. And actually, Milgram says the ideal zone of holiness. Someday the whole world will be the holy. the uh, The world of impurity that can happen if we let society go to pot. If we if we let injustice flourish. In our parsha, we have a very interesting passage where they bring the so-called purification sacrifice called the chatat. People think it's a sin offering. It's not. What it is, is that when you do a sin, this is in the language of the Torah, you make yourself impure. But as it were, you you push that impurity into the society and at the temple And if you keep sinning and if you're a society of lawlessness and violence and death, (laughs) gun, you know, gun mass killings all the time, Torah, in a sense, warns us that if you don't bring a sacrifice, meaning you have to purify the temple also, you have to purify society. If you don't challenge and you let mass death or constant pollution become normative and acceptable, of course, the ultimate punishment is that the society becomes rotten or and, hate and, or and, or 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 hate speech. racism or anti-semitism or hatred correct and and it's interesting that's so you have to bring a sacrifice it's paradox the the hatta there is a sin offering too but a chatad offering is to bring it for the temple in the imagery of the torah it's ritual language but it's a very profound philosophical message Lewis's accidental sins create impurity. You accidental meaning you didn't mean to do it. It was an accident, mm. or unintentional, or or not really, so to speak, you know, not first degree murder which you plan, but something in the heat. Well, accidental pl- sins attack the outer section of the sacrifice of the of the temple or of the tabernacle. And you have to bring a sacrifice to purge and purify. And of course the equivalent is you have to then challenge the evil and you can admit it and clean it up. And if you have a deliberate evil committed, that sin attacks the inner sanctum of the temple and you have a special sacrifice for that and you have a special ritual for that. And the point behind it is simply that a society needs to have periodic cleanup. No society can be free of evil or sin or mistakes or good or bad or intentional or unintentional. What makes a good society is that they can correct variables, that they can confess that they will, that corrupt leaders can be thrown out of office, that, that uh, waves of racism can be later acknowledged and corrected and new legislation and new corrections be made. Right. So that is the key point here again, that we, we, ha- we are called to take the common. The common area is the zone most people live in. It's a zone where there is life and there's death, where there's sin and there are good actions. Our call is to clean it up, to improve it, to work on the side of life so that the zone of daily life will be moved into the zone of holiness where life is supreme. It's all about making this world a world of complete life and of overcoming, uh, this is the goal of the prophets and of the messianic age, to overcome evil, to overcome oppression, to overcome inequality and discrimination, to overcome sickness, to overcome war. Mm -hmm. If we work and overcome all this we can turn the holy planet toward life and i would say yes we're seeing this in the environmental crisis if we let pollution fuster if we let the abuse of nature continue it becomes to the point where it's really threatening the very existence of the planet our call as a society this is what the sacrifice is, about, is to clean up the pollution to clean up the mess to reduce the carbon footprint to to correct the evils that have allowed people to be mistreated and oppressed and so on and if we do that then we can move the whole society toward the side of life that's the jewish dream that's the torah's dream someday that the whole earth can be moved toward the side of life
0: you you've left me a little speechless i'm i'm so moved by by the things that you're saying and by the by the imperative, by the the moral imperative that comes out of this idea. Let me actually, it occurs to me that I should take a step back and introduce our listenership to you and your work a little more fully. And then I wanna ask you about how this has influenced the work that you've done. Um, So you are, as I said before, a a rabbi and teacher and theologian and served in a number of rabbinic roles in chaplaincy and congregational rabbin as a professor um, at Yeshiva University Professor, I believe currently at Yeshiva Chovev Torah, uh, the Open Orthodox Yeshiva, as well as the Hadar Institute, which is how I got the chance to study with you um, last year. And I'm only—I think I'm only scratching the surface here of your the roles that you've played in the Jewish community. And I wonder, as as you have built your rabbinate over the la- over the course of the, the last number of decades, how has how has this idea that you're describing this um, this imperative for embracing and building life, how has it influenced the work that you've sought to do um, in, within the Jewish community and within the world?
1: Thank you for asking about it. Well, I'll start by saying I, I am a rabbi, I was trained to be a rabbi, but I, I confess my own thinking has led me more and more to see that it's, the rabbinate too, it should not be thought narrowly in terms of just the ritual or the synagogue itself. Sure. I think since the Jewish message is about building a world of life. So as I've said that, I saw that synagogue alone, first of all, synagogue itself should become a place of life. I mean by that it's a place that should be a community, which people care for each other, look out for each other, where it's where where the community sets standards of morality and honesty and integrity, but also sets standards of compassion and empathy and welcome. So I, number one is. I realized it's not enough to have a successful ritual or or for that matter, beautiful singing and beautiful religious expression programs. It has to take this form of human concern in society. And then I realized it shouldn't stop at the temple walls or at the synagogue walls. And so I then moved into academia and tried to develop some of these thoughts in teaching, and I believe education, and developing the minds of young people. And in, uh, I was deeply involved by the Holocaust, and that shook up and changed my religious thinking, but also inspired me that the Jewish response to the Holocaust was not to give in to death, but to renew life, we've had the greatest outburst of life in Jewish history. So then I went from, from academia to community work and uh, education for leadership. But what's the common, the common ground of all has been just this, to realize that even the rituals are trying to guide us to a richer life and to a deeper life and to an affirmation of a life and a responsibility. And as you mentioned before, responsibility for the other is certainly a key part of it. And I realize Jewish responsibility for Jews is moving. It's a very high standard, high expectation in history. And at the same time, it's not doesn't stop with the Jews. The ultimate Jewish dream is the whole world and not just the Jewish people. So the answer is this idea itself. I have to say, I got a lot of it from my first students. Uh, it's, it would, didn't simply invent it myself. In the feedback, uh, teaching, the students really picked onto this theme of life and living it more deeply, and they fed back to me. And that was an important part of the conversation. But, yes, it has it ends ends up in the end that I've tried to do this in many fields. And beyond my doing it, I feel very strongly if the goal of the religion is to overcome poverty, then here's a task for for business people to create jobs and to create a better product that makes a better world. And here's a overcome poverty. here's a task for economists. Here's a task for for educators to help people break a cycle of poverty by training them, and so on. So in other words, I came to see that really the, this work goes into the so-called secular area more than the other area. Healing lives, saving lives, that's what doctors do, and that was to be upgrading the quality of life. That's what social workers do and that psychologists do. So and I came to see in effect again that really what the rabbi is not so much personally just to do this, or talk about it, but to help people find the life affirmation in their life, to help people find the life building and planet improving work in their particular profession and help them bring it out and deepen it. So that has been very much the central the central theme, you might say, and then and little by little, it also, be, and this feedback that I got from students made me see that this theme should be explored even more deeply. So it has become, yeah, the central teaching, this book, which I had shared with you and the other members of the rabbinic cohort we studied together. This book is called The Triumph of Life, and its main thesis is just that, that Judaism sees the human role, or the Jews maybe as a lead example or as a pace setter. The human role is to fill the planet with life and to upgrade the qualities, both of nature and of society, so that they will sustain life at its fullest. That's the Jewish dream. So someday that's the Jewish dream that life literally can win out over its enemies. And the enemies of life are dictatorships and inequality, oppression, war, and so on. And, and this is our task to see if we can build a just society and remove the causes of war and and, and liberate people from poverty, or for that matter, from sickness with which is so debilitating and so destructive in in the third world, in, in all kinds of public health diseases, and even in the developed world in diseases now we're getting Alzheimer's, other dementia, other diseases of old age. So again, this is a, a major challenge in which the doctor can be the, um, the pioneering force for life by solving or curing or discovering cures for these diseases
0: it, it occurs to me that some of what you're doing is breaking down the barrier between what we might call the religious realm and the secular or political realm which is to say that these values which come for you and for me out of torah for someone else they might come out of a different religious text but for us they come out of torah they apply to our society as well and when you said that to be a rabbi is not only about having ritual within your synagogue it made me think about what isaiah says in the, the haftarah for yom kippur afternoon when he says is this the fast i want to simply not eat and then go back and oppress the poor that the fast that god is looking for is unlocking the fetters of the poor making sure that the poor and the war mm-hmm. and the orphan and the widow have enough to eat that our mm-hmm. religious life needs to lead us to A political, what we might call political or um, social justice life, that helps us actually move the world in a different direction.
1: Yeah, it's a it's it's a very it's an extremely important point. In this new book, I argue just that that the secular religious line is passe, or at least I believe so. And I put it from two sides. People sort of think of it. My argument, I, I claim in the book, that the divine presence in the world. Was much more visible in biblical times and that what, and, and the humans were much more passive and much more accepting of direction and not full partners, which is, I believe, the ultimate implication of Jewish covenant, that it's a partnership between God and humanity and between the generations of humanity. So, but as the Torah developed, as the Jewish people and as humanity developed, they became capable of a greater, more active role as partners. And so, God becomes more hidden. And my claim is, we're living in a time when God is almost totally hidden. You don't see. I mean, again, there there's still a good business for saints doing miracles, and for rabbis who, you know, who give, the, the Rebbe gives a dollar bill, and you become a multi-billionaire. But I, I, there are still people who go for that. I'm not trying to argue with them. But it seems to me in our time, God is invisible. But deliberately so. God, because God does not want us to worship God. That's not the main purpose of Torah. God wants us to build his better world, to, to give dignity and life and help to God's creatures, to upgrade the whole planet. That's what God wants from us. So the line between secular and religious, I think, is a false line. It was a line that grew out of the modern culture, out of the competition for influence and power. But in the end, God is saying, I don't want rituals in one little corner or, or an artificial circle. And, and and the society and other places, I'd like you to take my values, take my affirmation of life, take my call to do good and to give justice, to treat with equality, and apply it in every, literally every area. So my argument is, again, that religious and secular should see each other so not as competitors, but as potential allies together, to, to improve the world. I'll give one other example, and to me it's been very profoundly shaping in my thinking, and that came out of the Holocaust. Albert Camus, a famous existentialist philosopher and a so-called atheist, Camus tell, tells this story that when he was in France during World War II, and he began to realize what the Nazis are doing, in particular doing to the Jews, he decided to go into the underground. Now, he was an atheist Marxist, he said. So he thought he would, in the other he'd meet those fellow atheist Marxists who would fight this evil. His shock, he said, he found some of his best friends, atheist communists, sold out, and they collaborated with Nazis. Mm-hmm. And in the underground, he met Catholics. To him, they were the symbol of the old regime, you know, opium of the masses, uh, supporting the established order of injustice, reactionary, superstitious. And instead, they were there with him, giving their lives to stop this. He said, I came to see that the word... Marxist or the word Christian is an empty word, he said. Yeah. He said, It's not what you say you are, it's what you do. He said, I came to realize in the end, it's not about religion against atheism or atheism against atheism. It's about are you for or against the Holocaust? Are you for or against mass murder? Are you for or against human dignity? And from that point of view, his comment, therefore, was that the terminology of religion or the terminology of secular is misleading. It's your behavior that shows. If the people ask, so I've come to put it this way, to people who show respect for the image of God, a human being, then that's the true religious people, even though they present themselves as atheists. Yeah. And the verse, how about the Nazis? This is one of the most shocking things he, one reads. In the Nazis, there were believers. Uh, to me, it was one of the most shocking passages in all of Holocaust literature. The trial of the Einsatzgruppe, the shooting squads, the people that shot... A million and a half men, women, and children over eighteen months. Close up, they could see what they were doing. And can you imagine people like this now? One of the stories they told. It happened in the Ukraine, actually. The one of the, one of the heads they they described in Simferopol, which is in the Crimea. They were shooting Jews, and they, Captain the Command Commandant called them in and said, "Look, tomorrow morning is Christmas, and it, shooting the Jews." The noise, the sounds, it's disturbing to the holiday. So you have to finish it before the holiday. (sighs) So he asked him, what did you you do? So he said, well, the answer is we got up early before the dawn. We took out the last Jews. We finished shooting them off. And then we got back just in time for Mass. And I just said to myself, that's a believer in God. Got back just in time for Mass. So the answer is no. We have to learn from this, the basic, the deeper truth, that people who exploit and hurt and torment and kill human beings, no matter what they say about themselves, it's not. Their actions prove what Camus said. It's not what you do. It's what you. It's not what you say. It's what you do that you are. And the truth is right now, the category of religion or secular is not very meaningful. And I think we have to sort of pass... That and reverse it, say, everybody who's for human dignity, human life, for olam, we're in this together. And if you want to talk about your belief in God, and I think you should, if you want to believe God to deepen your service, be my guest. In fact, that's very important. When the day comes when you know that a religious person, so-called defined, or a sitting odd member, proves or guarantees that they have a higher level of... Of ethics, a higher level of concern, compassion for humans, a higher level of respect for life, then everybody will join a synagogue mm-hmm. and everybody will want to be. And if, and in the contrary, if you, okay. in the name of God, you are the opposite, then the answer is people don't want to have anything to do with their God. And they're right. Yeah. I think we've seen
0: plenty of cases of people of all religions who have claimed to be religious but have acted in ways totally contrary to what our religious to what their own religious teachings have to say
1: sure how about jihad and killing people innocent civilians and you think it's a mitzvah because you're because they dared to have a different religion or a different interpretation of your religion and that's enough to justify killing them well that seems to me is the opposite
0: and the other example that comes to mind for me is a few weeks ago, a group of Jews who um, rampaged through a Palestinian town and then took a break to Daven Mincha to say the afternoon prayer service um, during it. And it seems to me that people of all backgrounds have the ability to ignore their own, their own religion's ethical implications.
1: Of course, the prophets were furious and they said that. They said people who do the rituals and abuse people, uh, this drives God mad. <laughs> God hates such people and rejects such people and of course, it's also what the Talmud calls Chil Hashem. Chil Hashem means desecration of God's name or what the Talmud defines that as. It's an act by a so-called religious person, a person identified as a religious person. An act when a person sees that says, that's what God is, wants, that's what God does, that's what the religion is about, I don't want to have anything to do with that. It seems to me this is a good example you just gave here. To people carrying out a pogrom, that's what General Fuchs called it. The, the, the IDF person in charge of that area said it was a pogrom, carrying out a pogrom and in the middle to stop in prayer. Well, it's just as offensive as Jeremiah who said they, they come here, they have stolen, they have cheated, they have sold people into slavery and abused them. And then they come to my temple, and they bring me a sacrifice. God says... I can't stand, i would. I would destroy this temple. Jeremiah said, God hates such a temple and wants to have nothing to do with it. And that's what, I think that's exactly, we have to learn to see that, to see through that. And again, I don't get me wrong, I know many devout people who are very ethical and very responsible, but all more power to them. And that to me is the test of the religion that inspires a deeper level of compassion or concern. But people who, who wave the banner while at the same time acting the opposite way, or in this case, who are committing crimes and hurting and innocent bystanders, and and, and then turn to God, so to speak, to, to speak to God, it's 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 a crass demeaning of God and of God's Torah that it's associated as a cover or as a special banner of people who are doing evil.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So, what is the status of your book? Is it in publication? Will we be able to to read it sometime soon?
1: Well, thank you for asking. I should put you on my on my payroll for <laughs> no, actually the answer is the book, the manuscript, God willing. It's it's been more than a decade. It will be handed in to the publisher within two weeks' time. I hope four, just oh, before just wow. before Passover. However, then they have to produce it. And the truth is they won't guarantee anything less than 12 months, although so they say they'll try. They'll try to <laughs> get it. so the answer is I hope sometime next year. You will be able to buy the book. It's called "The Triumph of Life." It's a narrative theology, meaning the theology is taught not as a kind of a story, as the story of the Jewish religion and the Jewish people, and maybe the story of human history and how it's moving in certain direction. So, it's published by the Jewish Publication Society, I, and God willing, as I said, it'll be out in approximately twelve months. But uh, <laughs> stay Wonderful. tuned. Wonderful. <laughs>
0: Do you have time for a couple more questions, maybe about please. 10 more minutes?
1: Please, please. Sure. So My pleasure.
0: I'm curious. You, I'm a reform rabbi, as you know, um, and when I read your work and when I talk to you, I'm always struck with how much you and I have in common in terms of the things we believe. I, you hold a lot of views that I would say are consistent with With liberal judaism um, the idea of tikkun olam the sort of universalism of your view the move toward egalitarianism and i know that you're involved in the open orthodox movement which is the most egalitarian form of orthodoxy you remain steadfastly an orthodox jew and an orthodox rabbi and i wonder if you can tell us more about that what does it mean to you to be an Orthodox Jew, and how does that differ from the forms of liberal Judaism, whose rights you fight for, and whose some of whose views you share
1: so we're a background to well, for part of your answer to your question is that I was lucky enough to be born into an orthodox family and observe a modern orthodox family and loved it and 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 I had a Jewish religious educational experience with a lot of very wonderful, positive content. So in a certain sense, you might say, I never left home. I mean, that's one reason why I'm an Orthodox Jew, is a kind of the sociological truth. The second element, perhaps, is I'm an Orthodox Jew, but I'm also a pluralist. And again, that came from, looking back, I feel all the denominations, including Orthodoxy, were formed by their reaction to the modern culture, which came in, it swept the world, it upgraded the world in many ways, but it was so attractive and it took the Jews out of the ghetto, out of persecution, giving them a chance for equality and dignity and high achievement. So all the Jews naturally wanted to move toward modernity, except the ultra-Orthodox who were so afraid that it was so attractive that they would lose their religion that they said, try to say no. But they, in my judgment, they didn't succeed like they think they did. But my point is, looking back, each of the denominations, including Orthodox, had a good insight, which I accept. So looking looking back, for example, the reform point was, A, integrity. There were a lot of ethical issues that modernity taught us which are superior, including including egalitarianism and in our practice. And reform said, let's learn from them, let's accept them. Or there's these areas where our treatment of women or treatment of other things, where reform was the pioneer that there's room for upgrading and strengthening our own ethics by being like them and learning from them. And so in retrospect, I feel even if I disagree and I don't live as a reformed Jew fully, there are important contributions and insights that I respect deeply and which I gradually came to see I have to include in my own religion as well. It would be better rather than worse to learn from reformed passion for social justice or for reformed passion for greater equality and dignity. Having said that, so my answer in retrospect is the Orthodox were also right. The Orthodox position was that this is an unfinished journey in which the early generations and us are one chain. It's not we're a totally new world. And the truth is whatever they did and whatever they learned, whatever their experience, it's part of what brought me to this moment and this unfinished journey to repair the whole world. And therefore, I should not simply dump that stuff or say, well, that's old-fashioned or that's no good. I should bring it with me. And their heroes are part of my heroes. And if they hadn't done what they've done, even when I think they did things wrong or were room for improvement, it was part of that road. And I treasure it. And I respect it. So part of the reason I'm Orthodox is that I felt Orthodoxy, more than any other group, said we have to bring the whole tradition with us. Even that part of the tradition that we're not practicing. So again, the mistaken version of Orthodoxy, which I disagree with, is Orthodoxy means no change is possible. No. I'd say a true orthodoxy should be capable of change. We have in the Jewish tradition the oral Torah, the Torah of the living Torah, which takes the written Torah and applies it in new circumstances, and that may involve changes. So the answer personally is that that's the second reason why I'm Orthodox: is that they bring the whole tradition with them more actively. And I think reform, by the way, brings some tradition. In my judgment, they'd do even better if they brought more tradition. So again, we learn from each other as part of my position, just as I learned from reform where the change is needed. Reform could learn where tradition can enrich. The final reason I'm I'm Orthodox is that to this day, I think this community is the most intense and the most deeply prioritizing being Jewish, being religious. And I think that intensity is very and important. Unfortunately, it's sometimes misapplied, not sometimes. There are heavy, Whole chunks of Orthodox Jews who apply the intensity to hostility to other viewpoints or to attempts to impose, impose religious coercion in Israel, particularly. They have been disrespectful and trying to suppress and block reform and so on. So I disagree with them. So I, my answer to your question is that I'm Orthodox with guilty with an explanation, or maybe more important, I'm a pluralist who would like to see. The Orthodox contribute to the whole Jewish people and learn from the whole Jewish people, but vice versa, the whole Jewish people learn and apply the best insights of Orthodoxy in their lives.
0: Yeah, I really respect that view, um, that kind of pluralism. I I think many many of us call ourselves pluralists, but we ultimately think that our way is the best way or the right way. And I, I think, you know, that the idea that there can actually be multiple ways to be Jewish and moreover, to your point, that that we have a lot to learn from each other. To be able to self-critique, I think, is really important. To be able to say, here's where my movement and the the Jewish community that I'm part of can learn from a Jewish community that approaches things differently. I, I love that. And that,
1: to me, it's a, another way of putting it. I said the denominations grew in the modern culture, but I think we're entering the postmodern culture now. has more complexity, more pluralism, more richness, um, more risk also of dilution and of losing our old values. So I'm not saying it's automatic better, but I feel in moving into this new phase, I am personally believe that within a 100 years, the denominational lines will be almost meaningless. Like I said, secular religious no longer will be so meaningful. And I think we'll probably, maybe we'll divide it in new ways. That's also possible. You know, but I think people will look back and say, yes, reformers right on using the language of the country. Yes, reformers right about, about changes in egalitarianism and so on. And they'll say, yes, looking back, the Orthodox were right about intensity and learning, universal learning and higher levels of personal participation and priority for the Jewish. And we're concerned was right about tradition and change. In other words, people look back and take the best of what these groups did and try to apply them as we move into new divisions, maybe, or at least into new parallel paths. and it's not, I don't object. Someone has a very right to say, mine is the right way. What I object to is saying, mine is the only way, mm-hmm. because I think that we have to learn to see that God's infinite love and God's infinite guidance for the whole world allows for the variety and the uniqueness of human groups and human individuals. And there's no one way because there's no one human being type. There's multiple ways and it's part of God's love and grace that God gives us multiple ways. In fact, put it strongly. I not only imply this internally Jewish, in terms of the denominations, but I believe that multiple religions. I think that Christianity, not the the, the the repentant, purified Christianity of our time. It's not all of it is that way, but that it is way that has turned from anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism into respect for Judaism. That religion also, I think, is another pluralist way of creating a community and covenant and partnership with God. And one could go on and on. I think Islam, monotheistic, is another way to God, and one could go on and on. And it seems to me that's one of our goals and achievements. One of the greatnesses of the time we live in is the multimedia constant exposure one to the other. And it seems to me the positive version of that is when I get to see the other for the first time as a full human being and all their uniqueness and all their culture, I can come to appreciate their constructive contribution instead of a lose-lose or, or zero-sum game between religions. So that's my dream too, that as a result of this exposure that we learn to respect each other, disagree with each other, criticize each other, learn from each other. That all goes together in my judgment. And part of respect is to be able to say, when well, I think you're wrong. But I say it not to knock you down and not to dismiss you, but to help you get better and then vice versa. And obviously self-critique and getting, being open to other critique, I think, is a very constructive way of improving one's own game.
0: Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, I want to thank you for spending this time with me. We're, we're way over the 45 minutes I told you this would take. And, and I'm just so grateful for your time and for your wisdom and for your talking to me today.
1: Thank you so much for what you're doing and for making a podcast that would give me a chance to explore these issues together and lots of luck in the future in your important work, both communally and in podcasting. Be well.
0: Thank you. My deep thanks to Rabbi Yitz Greenberg for joining me from Jerusalem to talk for over an hour. Uh, I found this fascinating. I hope you did as well. And I really appreciate his take especially on Vayikra, the idea that this parsha is so much about affirming life, affirming the worth of others, and affirming the ethical imperative that we as Jews have, both to live life to its fullest and also to help make the lives of others better whenever we can. I also really appreciate his approach to pluralism, I'd like to continue that conversation about what reform got right versus what Orthodox got right. I think there's more to be hashed out there and more to be understood about how we as liberal Jews bring our entire tradition with us in building a Jewish life here in the 21st century, as well as how Orthodox Jews in various forms have been committed to the idea of tikkun olam, of repairing the world. And yet, I think the basic approach that we as Jews of different streams of different philosophies are all getting things right, and we all have something to learn from each other, that's an approach that I really appreciate and that I can really get behind as a pluralist and as a liberal Jew. So again, my thanks to Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, and my thanks to all of you for sticking with us for this conversation. As always, I welcome your feedback. You can email me at rabbistreifer at gmail.com or join us on Facebook in the 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss group. I'm going to put the whole slew of links in the episode notes both to sign up for the various classes or to email me or to support the podcast through patreon and next week we're back to the shorter version non-interview episodes as we continue our journey through the book of leviticus have a great week everybody and thanks for listening seven minute torah is a production of la Asok, sacred texts modern meaning if you enjoyed this program Please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash seven minute Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, L-A-A-S-O-K.org. I'm Rabbi Micah Stryfer. Thanks for listening.